And uh, let's just continue in prayer as I come to speak now. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you uh, that you are God who speaks. Uh, You spoke uh, 5,000 years ago. You spoke 2,000 years ago. You speak today through your Bible uh, and by your Holy Spirit. Lord, speak to us this evening, and may we act upon your words. Amen. Good evening, everybody. You'll need uh, Acts 3 open in front of you. That's on page 1094. And uh, the, the uh, talk tonight is in two parts. And the piece of paper and the pencil uh, which you have in front of you is for the second part. So don't fill that piece of paper with notes uh, in the first part, because otherwise it would be a problem in the second part. Uh, if you want to take notes, uh, scribble on the green sheet. That's, always, that's what it's for, I think. So um, I, was, I was scared this week. I was scared because I was going to go and see a rather formidable lady, specifically to go and talk to her about the gospel, uh, having been asked by one of her friends to go and do so. Now, I've seen this lady about four or five times now, and in that time I've had one good conversation with her about Jesus and about faith. And uh, I've been turfed out of my ear another three or four times. This time, uh, I managed to have a cup of tea, hand over a gospel, uh, and then I got turfed out of my ear again. It can be a very scary thing sometimes to, to share the gospel with people. And I guess that some of you may have faced some scary moments this week, particularly uh, perhaps if you've just started at the UEA or you've gone back to the UEA again or in your work situations, whatever. Or perhaps you're at the UEA and you've just walked into your commu- new communal kitchen and your, uh, and your roommates, your new roommates, are having a conversation. Um, and they're saying things like, well, can you believe it? I came out of the JCR last night, a bit worse for wear, and there was this geek from the Christian Union handing out hot chocolate. I mean, what did they think, what did they, think they were doing? And at that point, you've got a choice, haven't you? You could say, oh yeah, I know, what a geek. Or you could take the scary option and say, well, actually, I'm a Christian, and I've just joined the Christian Union, and this is why I think it's important. But that's scary, isn't it? Well, if you think that's scary, just imagine this scenario. The next day after that conversation in your kitchen, you get a visit from the university porters and they tell, them, and they tell you to go with them. And you, they take you directly to the university senate room where you find the vice-chancellor and all the top academics of the university. And the vice-chancellor opens up and he says, we've heard that you are a Christian. We have CCTV footage of you assisting that Megan Walling, a well-known Christian Union activist, in handing out hot chocolates outside the JCR late at night, which is expressly forbidden by University Regulation 253-1969, subsection 2C. And if you want a future in this university, then you'd better desist from this behaviour and any further involvement with those unruly ruffians called the CU. How would you feel? What would you say now? Well, spare thought for Peter and John in Acts chapter 3 and 4. You're wondering how I was going to get there. You see, they were just two fishermen from the Sea of Galilee. That's up north. And suddenly they had to face a whole crowd of people in the temple in Jerusalem in chapter 3. It's only weeks before these same people had been praying for the crucifixion of Jesus in favor of a criminal called Barabbas. It wasn't a friendly crowd. But it gets worse because in chapter 4, after a night in jail, 
They are dragged in front of the Sanhedrin, the most important ruling body in that country at that time. And chapter 4, verse 5 says that all the rulers, elders, and the teachers of law were there. It even names them, Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander. You see, it's the very same gathering that had been responsible for interrogating, condemning, and putting to death their friend and their leader, Jesus, only weeks before. Would history repeat itself again this evening, that day? Their accusers, the people who had taken them there, were Sadducees. They were the party who basically stood for two things. Politically, they advocated collaboration with the hated Roman occupiers. Theologically, they were the anti-resurrection party. They didn't believe in any form of resurrection from the dead. And here were Peter and John, stirring up the crowds in the highly symbolic public place in the holy temple of Jerusalem and fearlessly preaching resurrection from the dead. You see, the Sanhedrin was not only an unfriendly crowd, they were livid. They were livid with the apostles. I mean, this was unauthorized preaching by unauthorized preachers. What could be worse? The outrageousness of it all. And yet Peter, filled by the Holy Spirit, speaks speaks boldly. He steps out in faith and he socks them with the gospel. So I just wonder what we can learn from this incident about how does Peter share the gospel. We'll have three things for us tonight, all uh, more or less beginning with C, almost. The centre of the message, the challenge to his hearers, and the consequences of repentance. So let's look at each of these in turn. Firstly, the central theme of Peter's message. Well, they come, these two speeches, after a fairly dramatic event, don't they? You see the lame beggar, sat as usual, outside the beautiful gate. Strange name for gate. Sounds more like a name for a wife. That sounded good, didn't it? Sylvia, are you listening? And they were asking for money as he had done for the last 30-odd years. But Peter didn't have any money to give him. So what did he do? Well, he gave him something much more valuable than that. He tells him to walk. For the first time in 40 years, this man is helped to his feet and walks. It's amazing. He starts jumping about, leaping and praising God. The people are filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened in verse 10. Now, at this point, the focus could so easily be on that miracle. Or perhaps on Peter and John, the miracle workers. The beggar literally holds on to them in verse 11, saying, effectively, it was these two. These are the ones who healed me. These are my heroes. Aren't they incredible? And yet this story is not about an amazing miracle, or even the goodness or power of Peter and John. That's what it says in verse 12. No, the central theme of this narrative story is Jesus you see how Peter always turns them back to Jesus. In verse 6, he says, the beggar is healed in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. In verse 13, Peter tells the people in the crowd that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. In verse 16, he says, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. Later on, he'll make the same point to the rulers of the people. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he says to them in chapter 4 and verse 10, he says, It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. You see, Jesus was the central theme of all of Peter's speeches. He is the centre of his preaching. In contrast, I think perhaps we would be tempted to say, 
Yeah, well, it was pretty incredible, wasn't it? I mean, after all, a guy couldn't walk. He is 40 years old. He had a congenital disease. Uh, but at my touch, he just got up and walked. Yeah, I, I, I know. It, it was nothing, really. You know, all in a day's work. Or we might be tempted to say, in our kitchen, well, yeah, those, those people in the CU are pretty good people, actually. It's not just hot chocolate they hand out. They give out fairy liquid at the beginning of the week to the people arriving as well. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Or, or we could say, well, yeah, I, I help out in my church a bit. I do a youth club on Friday evenings, and the, the kids really enjoy it. The subtext being, I'm a pretty good person, really. Look at, look at me. But Peter and John were having none of that. You see, they simply said, look at Jesus. Not at the, uh, the, uh, the beggar's uh, felt need, which was money. Not even at the miracle. He could walk. He said, don't even hang on to us. It wasn't our power and godlessness, godliness. No, he says, look at Jesus. It was in his name that we did all these things. It'd be nice, isn't it, wouldn't it, if it was as easy as just sort of going around wearing a badge, you know, saying, smile, Jesus loves you, or, or walking down the city centre with a sandwich board saying, Jesus is coming again. But it's not quite that easy, is it? Because although we don't get the full version of Peter's speeches here, I mean, they take a couple of minutes to read, and yet this took several hours, we learn from the timing in the passage. But we get enough of the outline to see how Peter systematically explains to them that Jesus is God's Messiah. He's been glorified or vindicated by God, if you like. You just need to look down and at some of the names or descriptions that Peter gives to Jesus. He says, he is the servant of the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, who has been glorified, verse 13. He's the holy and righteous one, verse 14. The author of life, verse 15. He is the Christ or Messiah, verse 18. He's a prophet like Moses, verse 22. He's Abraham's offspring, through whom all the peoples on earth will be blessed, verse 25. The people had shouted, crucify him. The rulers had interrogated him. They knew Jesus as an outlaw, a troublemaker, a prisoner, as a dead man. And yet here were the apostles, a matter of just weeks afterwards, proclaiming him to be the Lord's suffering servant from Isaiah, a Davidic king, as good as Moses, the most famous prophet of all, the fulfillment of Abraham's promise, Abraham being the father of the nations. You may have rejected Jesus, they were saying, but he has been vindicated by God. You tried to kill the author of life. What a joke. I mean, you can no more keep Jesus dead than you can stuff a jack-in-the-box jack back into its tin with a broken catch. You crucified him. But God has raised him from the dead. And we, the apostles, are witnesses to this fact. You see, that was the message that they preached time and time and again in these chapters of of Acts. So much so that when Paul, an apostle, went to Athens later on, the people thought he was advocating two foreign gods. They thought there was a god called Jesus and another god called Anastasia, which is simply the Greek word for resurrection. In Acts 17, verse 18. It's good to know that. Paul struggled to make himself understood sometimes as well. But this was the central theme of their preaching. Jesus crucified. Jesus risen from the dead. Jesus glorified. And here comes the challenge to his hearers. Because in speaking about Jesus in those terms, they weren't afraid to offend their hearers. You see, people like to think uh, about the goodness of humanity. 
After all, they were very happy to think that Peter and John had healed this lame man. But Peter has to say, no, no, it wasn't us. Only, only God has the power to heal. Later on, he tells the rulers in chapter 4 and verse 9, he says, we've been called here because of an act of kindness shown to a lame man. But it wasn't us. It was by the name of Jesus Christ, of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. He goes on to say the same thing about salvation. In verse 12, he says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to me by which we must be saved. Do you see? Only God can heal. Only God has the power to save. It's as if he says to them, You see, you people, you like to think yourselves uh, as good people. Here you are in the temple observing your afternoon prayers at three o'clock in the afternoon. And yet, just weeks ago, you took God's servant Jesus and you had him handed over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate. You disowned the holy and righteous one, the Messiah, and asked for a murderer instead. Later, to the good rulers of the Sanhedrin, he says, and they, they were basically convinced that they were closer to God than anybody else in the whole city. He says to them, you are supposed to build up God's people on earth. And yet, verse 11, you rejected the very stone that has become the capstone of God's people. See, Peter doesn't beat about the bush, does he? He says, you have all rebelled against God by rejecting his son, Jesus. This message is nothing if it's not an offence to our human pride. Because most of us like to think of ourselves as basically good. Certainly no worse than the next person. And yet Peter says, we are in rebellion against God's son. And that's why we will never make any sense of the meaning of this world until we have given up that rebellion and put our faith in Christ. Only God can heal. Only God can save. There is no other name. Not Moses, not Muhammad, not Krishna or Buddha, not even Mark Huddleston can save himself or anybody else. Because at the end of the day, this is not about our own power or godliness. Only God can save. So if we could convince God that we are basically good enough, then there's no reason that Jesus had to die. If salvation could be found in the five pillars of Islam, then there would have been no reason for Jesus to die. If salvation could be found in meditation or contemplative life, then there would have been no reason for Jesus to die. Only God can save. And he did it through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And yet, please note, in this challenge, there's, you see, there's no hint of anger or superiority or judgment here, is there? There's no na-na-na-na-na, the Messiah came and you missed him. There's nothing of that kind of thing. No, because Peter actually challenges his hearers, but he retreats them with the greatest of respect. Notice in verse 17 how the tone changes from one of challenge to invitation. He said, now brothers, now brothers... I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. Indeed, this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that the Christ would have to suffer. It's almost as if there's an understanding here, isn't there? A sort of kindred spirit. See, Peter tells him in verse 13, you handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murder would be released to you. You handed him over. You disowned him. You disowned him. I wonder what memory that might give to Peter. Perhaps a memory of a courtyard and a servant girl 
and a cock crowing three times. Peter asked Jesus, do you really love me? You see, nobody knew better than Peter that we have all disowned Jesus. We have all rebelled against him simply by our own neglect and ignorance of his word and his standards. But Peter also knew better than anybody else what it means to be forgiven by Jesus. And just as Jesus knew that Peter would disown him three times, God knew that we would disown him. He foretold it in the prophets, we're told in verse 18. You see, Jesus, the whole Jesus story, wasn't a hastily arranged plan B. Jesus was a part of God's story, God's plan, since before the world began. And people like Moses were saying, listen to this man when he comes. Isaiah was saying, this man is going to have to suffer and be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and take the punishment upon himself to buy us peace. And it's because God had this salvation plan since the beginning of the world through Jesus that we are invited in verse 19 to repent and to believe and to receive. And it goes on from there, 19 and 20, the the three consequences of our repentance. The three consequences of our repentance. So firstly, there is total forgiveness. Your sins will be wiped out, it says, taken away, obliterated. The penalty for your sin is paid. The death caused by sin is conquered. You are forgiven every wrong you have ever committed. Every shameful act that preys upon your mind. Every slip or omission that has caused hurt or pain. Forgiven. Wiped away. Obliterated. Secondly, there will be spiritual refreshment. Times of refreshing will come from the Lord, Peter says. Isaiah 35 Sort of a time when the desert and parched land would be glad, the lame would leap, and water would gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. You see, we're not just uh, forgiven once and then put back in some kind of neutrality with God, a kind of uneasy truce. No, we can look forward to this long, cool, refreshing pint glass of iced water and lemon on a summer's day. How good is that? relaxing with God and enjoying wave after wave of reassurance and peace which can only come from having a new relationship with God. And thirdly, there will be ultimate restoration. Peter says, Christ, who has been appointed for you, even Jesus, must remain in heaven from now until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. So Christ remains hidden for now. But here is a future promise that Christ, who rules in heaven now, will come and restore everything on earth and put everything under his perfect rule so that there's a new heaven and a new earth. See, imagine a world where there's no broken relationships, no more injustice, no more poverty. Everything restored as God intended it to be. Everything put right. Every dilemma resolved. You see, these are the wondrous consequences of our repentance. This is the salvation that in verse 26 blesses us by turning us from our wicked ways. We're offered total forgiveness, spiritual refreshment, and ultimate restoration. Finally, you have to feel a little bit sorry for the Sanhedrin, don't you? See, they tried their best to shut up Peter and John. They threw them into prison. 
But it's too late, wasn't it? Because many who, belie- who had heard the message believed, and the number of believers grew to about 5,000. So they threatened them with violence and persecution. And after calling a prayer meeting of the church, in verses 23 to 31 of chapter 4, the apostles just became even bolder. The Sanhedrin just couldn't win, could they? Well, why not? Well, basically, because they couldn't deny the miracle that had taken place. And secondly, they couldn't deny the resurrection of Jesus. You see, it would have been the easiest thing in the world to stop this movement in its tracks, to stop it overnight, if they'd just been able to prove that that miracle was a trick and that the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen by producing his body out of some tomb or box somewhere. But the passage tells us there was nothing they could say. There was no body that they could produce. Verse 13 says, they took note that these men had been with Jesus. And verse 16 says, everybody living in Jerusalem knows that they have done an outstanding miracle. And we cannot deny it. So the central theme of our message must be Jesus, who died and rose again and was vindicated by God. The challenge to our heroes is to to note their responsibility before God for their sin that took Jesus to that cross, that meant a plan of salvation was necessary. But in humility and respect, we know ourselves to be saved by grace alone. If it weren't for the grace of God, we would be rebelling and saying the same things as other people. And in that way, we invite others to enjoy the consequences of repentance, which is total forgiveness, spiritual refreshment, and ultimate restoration. I think Maya's going to come and lead us in our prayers now. And after Maya's led us in our prayers, then I'll come back again and we'll do something slightly more practical. Thanks, Mark. Okay, um, can we have the uh, presentation? Thanks, Lord. Right, pieces of paper and pencils on your, on your seats. Uh, we talked a little bit about uh, how the disciples went out and they spoke boldly um, and shared their faith boldly. Well, uh, I thought it would be a good opportunity just to uh, introduce you to what is called a, a gospel outline. This is called Two Ways to Live. Uh, some of you may know this. Uh, but if you do, then it's always a good idea to refresh yourselves anyway. Um, uh, the idea of this is that it doesn't replace uh, what we heard in the passage, which is the prayer of the church and being filled with the Holy Spirit. You need that. That is fundamental, being able to share your, uh, share your faith with other people. But what it does do is help you to just have an outline in your head in terms of what would you say if somebody said to you, uh, what does Christianity mean? What does it mean to be a Christian? So this is two ways to live. And what I'd like you to do on a piece of paper, you're going to see six slides, and each, and each slide there's a very rough line drawing, and there's a Bible reference. So on your piece of paper, I'd like you just to do that little drawing and write the Bible reference. You don't have to write anything else down. Just a little drawing and the Bible reference. And, uh, and I shall read out from this little leaflet here, which is a two ways to live leaflet. Um, but you can find this on the internet if you just Google two ways to live, then it will come up very easily and you'll find this on, on a website. So no problem. And we have some leaflets at the back of church like this if you don't have access to the internet. So um, leave space in your paper for six little drawings. Okay, so do them fairly small. Okay, so two ways to live. Next, here we go, first drawing. This is representing the world. 
and the crown of God. And as you're, as you're reading that, as you're drawing that, sorry, I'll just read this to you. God is loving ruler of the world. He made the world. And he made us rulers of the world under him. How are you doing on your drawing? You know? How quick are you? Yep, finished? Good. Okay, Revelation 4, 11, which says, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. But is that the way it is now? Next slide. Next drawing. You see, we all reject the ruler, God. We rebel against him, as I was saying in the talk, by trying to run life our own way, without God. We put a little crown over our own heads. But we fail to rule either ourselves or society or the world. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. So what will God do about this rebellion? Next slide. God won't let us rebel forever. God's punishment for rebellion is death and judgment. Hebrews 9, verse 27 says, Man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. God's justice sounds hard, sounds harsh. But, next slide. Are you keeping up? Because of his love, God sent his son into the world, the man Jesus Christ. Jesus always lived under God's rule. He lived a perfect life. Yet by dying in our place, he took our punishment and brought forgiveness. 1 Peter 3, verse 18 says, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. But that's not all. That's not How are your little crowns? They're the difficult bit, aren't they? You know, Just do three points. Like a sermon. God raised Jesus to life as the ruler of the world. Jesus has conquered death, now gives new life, and in the future will return to judge. 1 Peter 1 verse 3 says, In his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So where does that leave us? Last slide. Well, it leaves us with two ways to live. There's either our way, which is to reject the ruler, that's God, and try to run life in our own way, with our own little crown over our own, our own selves. 
But the result of that is we'll be condemned by God, facing death and judgment. Peter put it like this in our passage tonight. He said, if you do not listen to the prophet Moses, you will be cut off from among God's people. John chapter 3 verse 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So the alternative way is God's new way. Submit to Jesus as our ruler. Rely on Jesus' death and resurrection. And the result of that is to be forgiven by God and given eternal life. Which of these represents the way that you want to live your life? And there's a little prayer at the end of the book. So that is a gospel outline. It's not, um, uh, it's not the exact words that you'd use in any situation, obviously. You would adapt what you want to say and respond and use your own words to explain it. I find the drawings can be quite useful because they remind yourself of what uh, you're, you're about to say. And it's also something you can give to the person to take away with them to remind them of the conversation you just had as well. Of course, all of this can be adapted to the particular circumstance and the particular pe- uh, stage that people are at. And obviously the best thing to do is ask questions and find out from them where they're at. But I think that's a useful little outline if you can try and uh, either learn that, or I'm useless at learning things, so I have it written in the back of my Bible. So it's always handy when I need it. And I have little drawings drawn in the back of the Bible as well. Two ways to live. It's available. Just Google it on the website and you'll find it come up. Let's uh, end uh, with a prayer, shall we? And it's a prayer I've adapted from Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John went back to the other disciples, the other believers in Jesus, and they all prayed to God using a prayer very similar to this. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You have spoken by the Holy Spirit and you have anointed your holy servant Jesus to be our Lord and Saviour. Now consider our fears and enable us, your servants, to speak your word with great boldness and miraculous signs in the name of Jesus. Amen.